This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, August 23, 2021. I'm Caleb Brown. The so-called war on terror was, in a sense, doomed from the start. Spencer Ackerman, author of the new book Reign of Terror, says the conceptual error that launched the war on terror led to torture, corruption of American institutions, trillions of wasted dollars, and, of course, the presidency of Donald Trump. We spoke Friday. What do you identify uh, as the original sin in the war on terror? And I realize just saying the words war on terror uh, might identify that original sin. But what do you what do you believe it to be? Uh, The original sin of the war on terror is found in in the name itself, uh, both the element of it uh, that says war and the element of it that says terror. Uh, We are not talking about, um, with the name War on Terror, uh, a conscribed, distinct thing with an enemy clearly named. We are describing a very broad thing uh, whose meaning gets fuzzier the more you poke at it, where conceptually uh, the United States commits itself to a kind of ever-expanding, violent campaign against a metaphysical condition or a form of warfare uh, that is, you know, ancient uh, and and demonstrates itself when uh, conditions of overwhelming asymmetry between combatants manifests. Although we're not really talking about that. The, The people who created the war on terror understood that this was a euphemism. What we're really talking about, and this is the central conceptual flaw of the war on terror, is that the war describes itself as not what it is. What it is, what was quickly understood um, by those words to mean, was that it was an expansive, violent campaign against an enemy that was seen in civilizational terms. Perhaps not every Muslim, but the presumption was that many, many Muslims, if not Islam itself, was the enemy uh, because of 19 violent uh, millenarian fanatics um, and the billionaire that controlled them. So mission creep is inevitable in ill-defined wars. And to the extent that uh, it, you know, it's hard to find the edges of what war on terror means, as you note. Um, so uh, I, I guess how quickly did we get away from uh, the notion that there is a specific group of people who are responsible for this. We're trying to clear them out. Uh, you know, what were the first steps of that expansion of, of the war? They were really the first steps of the war themselves. They, the first steps were to not define the enemy in terms of the specific people who committed the 9-11 atrocity and a campaign specifically aimed against them and only them. It was in immediately. Uh, the language that George W. Bush, to great applause uh, throughout the political spectrum, um, throughout the intellectual and journalistic spectrum, used after 9-11, uh, talking about the war in terms of uh, good and evil, talking about the war in terms of a conflict between the uh, duty-bound soldiers of freedom and the enemies of freedom that ultimately the war was not about the uh, specific, violent, religiously manipulated to justify grievances of these specific fanatics to be confronted, and then to have the United States itself come to terms with the historical grievance 
based on the violence that America was committing in the Muslim world, giving those people adherents and sympathizers, and then trying to unravel that. Instead, from the start, the war's architects view 9-11 as simultaneously disconnected from any of that history and a lever to get the United States uh, into a position of what its architects had considered the you know, appropriate state of America vis-a-vis the world, which is a reasserted global domination, a reassertion of American empire, a reassertion after what they had considered the lassitude following the end of the Cold War, to have a kind of grand unifying, rallying uh, purpose against this expansive adversary. The expansiveness of the adversary, the indecision of the enemy is necessary for uh, a response like that. The U.S. shifted to a massive a war footing just within days after uh, 9-11. This meant a massive increase in tools and power for federal agencies, including the, the Pentagon, uh, CIA, NSA, and others. What did that do to those those agencies as institutions? I mean, uh, libertarians broadly would not have a lot of regard for those institutions before 9-11, but what, what did all that power do to them? Oh, uh, it supercharges them. It gives them purpose. It gives them also license uh, to institutionalize abuse. Um, the war on terror, um, starting from um, the September 14th authorization to use military force, um, makes the president functionally over national security affairs an elected king. Uh, it allows the president to decide for the country by himself who the enemies of the United States are um, that require vengeance um, for 9-11. It's among the, the kind of lesser known or forgotten aspects, like the United States, you know, nationalizes airport security after 9-11. The, the, the growth of the security elements of this state uh, expand dramatically. Categories of, uh, a category of law called, known as material support for terrorism which kind of um, gets its uh, incubation period in the 1990s, supercharges in a way that transforms the you know, original purpose of it, which is uh, to stop the facilitating mechanisms of actual acts of violence, you know, funding and um, other, you know, as it says, material support, uh, into something so expansive that uh, second, third degree associations particularly those far from actual acts of violence, become criminalized. And that requires um, an enormous apparatus um, to, to enforce, uh, to inflict, and ultimately um, become fruitful in terms of finding people to prosecute and prosecuting them. And that's only for the elements of the war on terror that actually involved prosecution. There was also indefinite detention, as we still see at Guantanamo Bay. Beyond that, you also had an enormous erosion that takes place within institutions that are supposed to safeguard people from abuses from their government visited upon them um, in a way that uh, becomes really profound. Um, for instance, uh, not only are the courts uh, eager almost um, to provide maximal authority to presidents over national security, um, only 
over um, aspects of either like the margins of the war on terror or things that that are just considered, uh, you know, amongst the bourgeois, like bright line abuses, like, you know, holding American citizens like Jose Padilla um, into um, in military custody, uh, not providing them with a trial. Um, you know, but it also does things like sanction um, during the Obama administration, the actual targeting and execution without charge, let alone trial of an American citizen, Anwar al-Awlaki, where the judge in a case um, brought by his father to seek an injunction against an assassination that he reads about in the New York Times that's you know coming up uh, for his son, the judge says that because he can't prove that he, his son is being targeted, thanks to the veil of secrecy that the Justice Department sets over the operation, he has no standing uh, to stop the execution, and it proceeds. And that is a profound thing. And the longer the war persists and these tools are available uh, to governments, the greater the likelihood is that Anwar al-Awlaki will not be the only American citizen. In fact, he wasn't the only American citizen. Another one, Samir Khan, was killed um, alongside him. And then Anwar's um, 16-year-old son, Abdul Rahman, uh, was killed later. So um, more and more citizens, I should probably say, are likely um, to, to, to you know, come to that fate, particularly as our politics fractures. And as we saw with the last administration, um, you know, when the Black Lives Matter and anti-fascist protests broke out um, in, the, in the streets on the summer of 2020, uh, Trump was very eager to use both the language of counterterrorism and the mechanisms of counterterrorism, from drone surveillance uh, above 15 American cities to the Joint Terrorism Task Forces, he sicked on, quote unquote, Antifa, uh, to declaring Black Lives Matter terrorists and then having the Department of Homeland Security um, and minimally identified Justice Department forces used against those protesters. You know, you were you were talking about uh, the degree to which the Obama administration was uh, targeting Americans, and it, it it strikes me in in looking through your book that the degree to which a lot of this decision making that otherwise ought to have been sort of a more decentralized, diffuse set of decisions about. Um, how people are to be treated, particularly American citizens, how much of that was centralized in the White House? Because I can remember the Obama administration uh, trying to thread the needle, suggesting that due process uh, for Americans did not necessarily mean judicial process, that they had a list uh, of people that they would be targeted. Yeah. So that's a line from Eric Holder uh, that, that was um, very striking uh, in its implication. And it also, and it pointed to such um, a specific uh, pattern, not just inside the Obama administration where it manifested, but um, what I call in the third chapter of my book, introducing this theme, liberal complicity in the war on terror and how that manifested. Obama never delivers due process uh, in these circumstances. He delivers internal bureaucratic process. He tries to wrap a less conspicuous war on terror inside a belt of process uh, run by intelligence officials, uh, senior White House officials, and um, military officials and attorneys um, who, on this theory, uh, through deliberation, will come to the right conclusions 
um, and not over broad conclusions about uh, how to throttle death um, and who deserves uh, to be killed. Um, there is no judicial review here. Um, I think uh, something we might consider is that a process like this um, represents something of a usurpation of judicial authority. Um, and this is something that liberals did. This is something that liberals did that they were convinced made their war more lawful, that this made uh, the war on terror respect the law. In fact, all it did was make the law respect the war on terror. Yeah, with respect to, you know, the United States has, you could argue this this was a, a, an authorized war, that is to say not a declared war, but uh, forces authorized in Afghanistan. But the United States had a presence in many countries, and if by presence I mean dropping lots of bombs in countries that we weren't officially fighting, uh, given uh, President Biden's final decision to uh, withdraw from Afghanistan, um, do you see what happened here as largely inevitable? Yes. Uh, well, no. Let me back up. Uh, I'm not a fan of inevitability arguments, um, but what I am a fan of is remembering the appropriate history that got us to this point and applying that. And in that sense, the war was doomed conceptually, um, and we get here from there. Um, to give one very specific example, um, the consequence of defining the enemy so broadly and not drawing distinctions um, between Al-Qaeda and X, Y, and Z uh, resulted in uh, a faithful decision the Bush administration made in December of 2001 when the Taliban surrender in Kandahar and say that as long as uh, Mullah Muhammad Omar, the leader of the Taliban, uh, could live under some kind of dignified house arrest, then the Taliban would cease fighting, demobilize, and join a political process. And Hamid Karzai, the U.S.'s Afghan, the U.S.'s appointed Afghan leader at that point, accepts the deal, recognizing that if the Taliban aren't provided with a political future, then it will opt for a violent future. And it had a demonstrated capacity to triumph in such a violent future. Donald Rumsfeld and the Bush administration reject that and say that only unconditional surrender will do. They will not have a negotiated uh, resolution uh, to this war. And instead, they would press on for a victory that they would never be able to achieve, where the Taliban only capitalize on American mistakes and only get stronger and stronger and stronger. When, rightfully to my view, Donald Trump negotiated uh, a withdrawal deal from Afghanistan, the terms of the deal were particularly as it related to uh, demobilization um, and, well, the Taliban were never going to demobilize at that point, but the United States convinced itself of quite a lot, um, that uh, the Taliban would join a peace process that would basically fold them in to a new political settlement with the extant government. These were fundamentally similar terms to what the United States rejected when it had maximal leverage in Afghanistan. It sought them out when it had minimal leverage in Afghanistan. And the wages of all of this are at the Kabul airport right now. And we have to remember that. In terms of lasting effects on American institutions, you, you argue that, you know, a lot of our uh, the institutions that are aimed at 
going after bad guys, uh, foreign and domestic and collecting information and that sort of thing, that they've been fundamentally transformed. Is, the, is there any way back in, in terms of trying to rein in the, the missions of these uh, organizations to, to focus more carefully, more explicitly on perhaps a smaller haystack? Um, absolutely there is. I think that um, once people organize around abolition to the war on terror, um, the destruction of its tools, the revocation of its authorities, uh, and force their politicians into a binary choice between abolition of the war on terror along you know, specific programmatic agendas and losing their offices, then I think it is possible. It will certainly be difficult, but look right now, uh, Congress is seemingly prepared to uh, revoke the 2002 authorization for military force uh, in Iran. That doesn't happen by accident. That even, even as we recognize that the 2002 AUMF is not the wellspring of power that the 2001 AUMF is, that revocation was the result of extremely hard and dedicated work by activists, um, frankly, uh, that united uh, libertarians with progressives um, against the regnant forces within both parties in order to pressure members of Congress that this authorization is unacceptable. So when people unite, they win. Uh, it's a question of whether uh, people can stand together sufficiently in order to roll this reign of terror back. Uh, John Mueller here at Cato likes to talk about, and careful listeners of this podcast will have heard me say this many times, the self-licking ice cream cone. That is yeah. an agency that, that gets a new job, gets a new task that it must accomplish, and by way of uh, maintaining that budget uh, that is uh, associated with that task, they make the threat posed by them not doing that task as large as possible. And I think I feel like we've seen that writ large with almost every federal uh, military agency and law enforcement agency that the threat of terrorism has been uh, puffed up in a way that um, is not necessarily not justified by the threat that terrorism poses in America. No, the Afghanistan war didn't rebuild Afghanistan. The Iraq war didn't rebuild Iraq. They rebuilt Crystal City. They rebuilt McLean. They rebuilt Vienna. They rebuilt Tyson's Corner. They rebuilt Northern Virginia. <laughs> just, just to be clear, just to be clear, you're talking about neighborhoods in suburban Washington, D.C. That's right. I'm talking about the ways in which the defense industry uh, were the primary beneficiaries of the war on terror. That this was what was in 2019 estimated um, by uh, the Cost of War Project at Brown University to represent a $6 trillion transfer of public wealth into the defense industry. This is the wages of, of the war on terror. You know, I, I've heard that term self-licking ice cream cone um, so many times on military bases in Iraq and Afghanistan and elsewhere. This is, this is a, a, you know, a source of uh, you know, dark humor amongst people who represent like the pointy end of the spear in the war on terror, many of whom have no illusions about what the war on terror is. I remember going to um, Afghanistan in 2010 and like being stuck at Bagram Airfield for a while, waiting for um, transfer out um, to an embed and just like randomly talking um, with people, you know, on the base who were like asking me, 
Like, tell me how anything we, we're doing here makes sense. Tell me how this wraps up into some kind of like successful conclusion. Any conclusion at all. Tell me how what we are doing contributes to like a broader national, at that point, like many were still accepting like the framework of the war on terror and just found like nothing here in Afghanistan even makes sense on those terms. Spencer Ackerman is author of Reign of Terror. We spoke Friday. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast pretty much anywhere and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.